eight or nine weeks actually by now and uh, we know these words uh, well but we're just going to uh, read them again uh, where Jesus comes to um, share with his disciples in particular and with the crowd in general that were gathering around chapter 5 and verse 1 now when he saw the crowds and he went up on a mountainside and sat down his disciples came to him and he began to teach them saying blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted uh, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. And we'll finish there at verse 9. And then if you want to turn to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, we're just going to read uh, a few verses here in chapter 2. Great chapter, um, beginning at verse 14. Paul has been talking about uh, our salvation, about being made alive in Christ, about being one in Christ. And then he says in verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we have access to the Father by one Spirit. And we'll just end that reading right there. Let me ask you a question right off the, the top, as it were. Uh, as you live these days, can you say that you're always experiencing perfect peace and rest? This week, with whatever has been going on in your own life, your personal life, your family life, um, can you say, yeah, this week I experienced perfect peace and rest? Well, that's for you to answer. As we continue in this uh, sermon series, there's one more beatitude uh, left. That's for next Sunday night. But as we continue in this series, we come tonight to, to what is perhaps the, the least contentious of the beatitudes. The study of the beatitudes is a foundational teaching, um, really a foundational teaching uh, for every would-be disciple of Jesus Christ. Because from verse 3 right through to verse 12, when we'll finish next week, we have a practical summary of what it means to be saved. What it means to be a fruitful follower. In essence, what it means to know God. And it's all wrapped up in these incredible statements that begin with, blessed are, or how happy are you when. And tonight we're going to look at this important uh, teaching of Jesus um, about being peacemakers. Uh, because all too often, as, as nations, as individuals, it seems that we can lapse uh, into being peace breakers or peace fakers. And when we look at those in just a few moments. But before we really get into this beatitude, let me say that with each one, uh, Jesus is driving another nail into the coffin 
of a false understanding of salvation which says that a person can be saved without being changed. Or that a person can inherit eternal life even if their attitudes and their actions are like the attitudes and actions of unbelievers. One after another. These beatitudes tell us that the blessings of eternity will only be given to those on earth who have become new creations in Christ Jesus. In fact, Jesus goes on to say in verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons or the children of God. Because if we don't obtain mercy, we'll receive judgment. If we don't see God, we won't be in heaven. We don't experience him. And if we aren't called the sons of God, it means we're outside of his family. In other words, a life of disobedience to the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount won't stand on the day of judgment, despite what we might say to ourselves and to others that we believe. And so I want to impress uh, on, on our conscience this evening, yours and mine, with as much earnestness as I can this evening, that these Beatitudes, uh, in these Beatitudes, Jesus isn't making sort of optional suggestions, take it or leave it, about how we are to be. Or how we can attract, as we've been saying, as, as Max Lucado wrote, the applause of heaven. On the contrary, Jesus is describing the pathway to heaven and, and his, his is a message from God to urge us to get on that pathway and to stay on that pathway so that we can be called the sons of God at the last judgment. And that's what's at stake, really, as we sit here tonight under the ministry of the Holy Spirit and if you're on the narrow path that leads to life, my desire is to help you to stay on that narrow path. But if you're still on the broad way that leads to destruction, you've never acknowledged Christ to be your saviour, my desire is to redirect you to that path of eternal life and to the saviour. So let's begin by, by reviewing quickly what we've learned by reading all the verses that we've been studying, ending with today's text. And let's be listening Let's be uh, looking out for that still small voice of the Holy Spirit of God, reminding us of all he's been teaching us as we've studied each of these amazing statements. We've already seen that these uh, beatitudes, things that we're to be, the attitudes that we're to have, are a progression. They're like a ladder. So that when you step on the first rung, naturally you come to the second rung, and so on. Now, the last beatitude that we looked at was blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God, they shall know God, they shall experience God. And so it's logical to think that those who are pure in heart, those who have a heart that's morally clean, a heart that's fully devoted to God, should be the very people who would be peacemakers and can consequently be called the children of God. This seventh beatitude and Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons or the children of God. It's one of the most, it's the one beatitude with the most universal appeal because almost everybody wants peace. And almost everybody wants to be called a child of God. And so we might assume that peacemaking would come naturally to those that are pure in heart. But does it? Does it? Like the other beatitudes that we've studied up to this point, 
I believe these words would have sounded very radical uh, to the people in Jesus' day because at that time the Jewish people were struggling, uh, as you know, under the cruel domination of, of Rome, the Roman Empire. And I'm sure the heartfelt desire of every Jew in Jesus' day was to see the Romans run out of their country. And many were convinced that it wasn't going to happen without a major conflict. You remember Simon the Zealot? He was listed among the apostles uh, selected by Jesus. He was one of them. And the Zealots were originally a, a political movement of the first century that sought to incite people to rebel against the Roman Empire. The kind of early day terrorists, you might say. To expel them out of the Holy Land by force of arms. And they wanted a battle in which they would absolutely crush the Romans. And they were zealous about it. That's why they were called the Zealots. And they wanted to punish the Romans for the cruel way that they had been treated. That was their fondest dream. It was their hope and their prayer that God, their Messiah, would send a military Messiah who would come and, like their previous great warrior King David, he would lead them into a great military conquest over the Roman rulers. But you know, the first Jewish-Roman war was in around AD 70, and it ended... It ended with a mass suicide of 960 zealot rebels and their families hiding on a mountaintop fortress called Masada. Now, some years ago, there was a movie called Masada. You may have seen it about that tremendous uh, um, uh, event. And I've been to Israel, and many people that go to Israel, part of the, the tour, and what you see is, is, is to go up a, a chairlift or to walk up, if you're able, to Masada to the top of where these people had encamped, these Jewish rebels, they were there, and they thought they could withhold the, the Romans, but the Romans, of course, were mightier and stronger, and eventually they built a ramp up to the mountain. And, and of course, the people on top of the mountain could see this ramp being built. They knew what was going to happen. And rather than being taken captive by the Romans, uh, 960 of them, uh, the complete uh, group of people there, uh, committed mass suicide. So, so as the people of Jesus, they heard this statement, blessed are the peacemakers, they must have thought something like this. Is this Jesus guy for real? Is he not aware of the iron hand of the cruel Roman Empire that controls everything that we do day by day? Does he not know about the taxes that they impose on us that keep us just on the brink of poverty? Does this man, Jesus, not know uh, that King Herod the puppet ruler of the Roman Empire slaughtered 3,000 Jews at a recent Passover celebration? Hasn't Jesus heard about how the Roman governor Pilate massacred Jews on the Temple Mount and desecrated the Temple by mixing their blood with the sacrifices they were offering? And their next thought would have been, well, of course he knows all this. Everyone does. So how can he say, blessed are the peacemakers? This was a radical, counterintuitive Countercultural statement for Jesus to make. Now, if we fast forward uh, in Marty McFly's time machine uh, back to the future, to, uh, to our time, to us today, you know, the truth is that these words of Jesus sound just as radical today in our day and age. Now, we aren't held under subjection to an army of occupation, but the real threat of conflict surrounds us all the time nonetheless have you ever been in a situation I'm sure you have because you're human where you felt wronged 
or you felt taken advantage of and you wanted to fight back? Situation where your peace of mind was threatened by someone else or something else? Because every day people and situations try our patience and if we're not careful, these situations can easily become volatile and explode into conflict, robbing us of what little peace we do have and enjoy in this fallen world. We have disagreements with family members, right? We have disagreements with co-workers at times. We have disagreements with friends and neighbors. And even though it pains us to admit it, many times we even have disagreements with our brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, and I'm ashamed to say it, but it's true that Christians are well known for their tendency to fight and argue among themselves. Someone has said, <laughs> sadly said, where two or three are gathered together in Jesus' name, there will eventually be conflict. And have you noticed how whenever we find ourselves embroiled in a conflict situation, our sinful nature, our sinful human nature, all too quickly kicks in. And in these times, our sinful pride says, don't let people walk over you. Win the argument. Come out on top. If someone's nasty to you, give as good as you get. Don't get mad. Get even. Does that sound peaceful to you? It reminds me of a classic conversation you may have heard about it between a certain Lady Astor. True story. And Sir Winston Churchill back in the day. Neither of them liked each other. Lady Astor said to Churchill uh, one day, he said, if I she said, if I were your wife, I'd put poison in your coffee. And Churchill wittily responded, and madam, if I were your husband, I'd drink it. <laughs> you know, even our laughter about that shows that we are predisposed not to peace, but to conflict. If you're honest, how many of you have thought, well, way to go, Winston Churchill, good comeback. <laughs> I wish I could be as quick on my feet when people say things like that to me. In fact, I'll, I'll write that down and I might be able to use it again. The fact that we admire put-down responses like Churchill's in a small way actually shows our, our bent, our predisposition towards conflict and getting even. And thanks to this aspect of our sinful nature, many times, even when we're striving for peace, or we think we are, we end up quarreling and we end up in conflict of one kind or another. You know, peace is a major theme throughout the Bible. It's mentioned over 400 times and it begins, the Bible begins, and it ends with peace. When God originally created man and woman and put them in the garden, it was a garden of peace. God said it's all good. But when man sinned, peace was interrupted. Until, that is, at the cross, peace became a reality again as he who died on the cross became our peace. And since God and Jesus has provided peace, there can be residual peace in the heart of any man or woman who comes into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Don't forget, of course, that one day, Jesus will return again 
and establish a kingdom of peace for all eternity. In the new heaven and in the new earth, we'll enjoy peace forever. Amen. The gospel, the story of redemption, is the gospel of peace. Peace forfeited through sin, peace regained in the heart. And finally, those who long for God will enjoy eternal peace in the days when he returns. But in the meantime, of course, we live in a world which is constantly teetering on the brink of conflict. A world that is unquestionably getting worse and worse. And we can see that war can and does break out at any moment in any corner of the globe. That was a great fear, wasn't it, over Iran and and, and all of that stuff, that that war, war might occur. It's true to say that almost everyone in the world wants peace in war-torn countries, in broken marriages, in in, in families where there's conflict, in all sorts of relationships and nations. People yearn for peace. So if everybody longs for peace and peacemaking, what's the reason why there's so much strife in the world? Why there's so much tension, bitterness, violence, bloodshed and war? Why is peace the most significant word in the human vocabulary. And yet it's one of humanity's most elusive experiences. Well, the sad fact is that the history of mankind is littered with one conflict after another. I was reading, as I was preparing this, the Society of International Law in London reports that during the last four millennia, last 4,000 years, there have been only 268 years of peace. That's less than 7% of that time. And in the last two millennia, the last 2,000 years alone, there have been over 15,000 known wars. And in that same period of 2,000 years, over 8,000 peace treaties have been made and broken. The United Nations was formed with the express purpose, it says, to have succeeding generations free from the scourge of war and conflict. But since the day it was founded in 1945, the scourge of war uh, has been there. There hasn't been one single day of peace on this war-torn earth. A new generation has been free from the scourge of war. And it's caused an insightful cynic to say, peace is that glorious moment in history when everyone stops to reload. Think about that. And unfortunately, that cynic is right. Conflict is all around us. And the inconvenient truth is that most of us respond in ways that only sometimes make matters worse. A few years ago, researcher George Gallup surveyed people on the top five questions they'd like to ask God. And the list included the following question. Will there ever be lasting world peace? Good question. One that the Bible does answer. You know, when Jesus was born, the angels sang. What did they sing? Peace on earth. Goodwill towards men. And Jesus himself, didn't he say to his disciples, peace I leave with you. That was his legacy. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, giveth unto you. And then the Apostle Paul said of Christ, and we read it, he himself is our peace. But you know, that's only one side of the biblical story. Ecclesiastes 3 and 8 says there's a time for war and there's a time for peace. There's no lasting peace in the world. Do you know why? Because there's a civil war that rages in the heart of every man and woman. 
President Eisenhower once said, we have become a race of intellectual giants and moral pygmies. And despite our great technological advances, we continue to devise more efficient means of killing each other. And into this sinful world, filled with violence and hate, Jesus sends us, you and I, who, who call him our Savior, our Redeemer, our Lord. He sends us to be his agents of peace, to be peacemakers. We aren't given the choice of whether or not we would like to be peacemakers. And we certainly aren't given the choice of what kind of world we would like to live in. So as bad as things might be, this is the only world we have. And if we're going to be true to God, we're called to and we must be peacemakers. God has put a high priority on peacemaking. And as followers of the Prince of Peace, we have the responsibility to bring peace to otherwise troubled souls and into situations where there would be otherwise conflict. God didn't give this responsibility to politicians. He didn't give it to statesmen or diplomats. He didn't give it to arbitrators. He didn't give it to lawyers or judges. He didn't give it to kings and rulers. He didn't give it to Nobel Peace Prize winners of the United Nations. In fact, if you study scripture, there's yet to come in the future, perhaps most superficially and temporarily, a successful peacemaker the world will have never seen before. He's known to us as the Antichrist. And like all other worldly peacemakers, he'll prove to be nothing but a forerunner to more uh, and further conflict and tribulation. However, God's peacemakers are very different from everything the world would identify as a peacemaker. And we can take heart in that because the record of, of world's, well, the record of the world's peacemakers is not one to envy. It's one of complete failure. We desperately need peacemakers today and every day, perhaps more than ever, because there's so much war, misunderstanding, bitterness, double-crossing, anger, lying, hatred, bloodshed. On every hand, uh, there's ruined marriages, husbands and wives fighting it out in divorce courts. There's broken friendships, shattered relationships, bosses who don't trust their workers and workers who cheat on their bosses. There's so much heartache and not much peace in the world today. And into that world... We're called to go as peacemakers, reconciling, intervening, uniting, listening, resolving, mediating, doing what we can to end violence, to stop the bloodshed, to bind up the wounded, to bring God's shalom to everybody, his gracious peace. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom. <coughs> and when it's used as a greeting, as the Jews often do, shalom it's not wishing someone the absence of conflict, but the full presence of God and his blessings. And of course, God's shalom is best known from the high priestly benediction in Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Peace is not some drug-induced tranquility that comes from marijuana or weed or whiskey or a quick six-pack. That's not peace. That's simply a drug-induced stupor that allows you to temporarily check out of the real world. Biblical peace is a broad term related to spiritual health and to harmony and to wholeness. And we tend to respond to the conflict that's all around us, you know, in one of three ways. 
First of all, listen carefully. First of all, there are people that we could call peace breakers. Those people who seem to go out of their way to break down relationships. These are those who seem to enjoy and even thrive on conflict. They just love to cause trouble and division. And they're often oblivious to the fact that they're doing it. They tend to be opinionated and judgmental. Deliberately confrontational people who seem to think that their spiritual gift is to disagree with everybody about everything. And their main tool for doing that is the tongue. The tongue. They use this little slippery appendage to gossip and to slander on the phone or in conversations. Many of them in church hallways and foyers. Or they use carefully crafted emails or Facebook posts to tear down and to cause division. And I know this might offend any peace breaker who's present here tonight. But the fact is, peace breakers are pawns of Satan amongst God's people. If you're a peace breaker, you're a weak believer who Satan moves around attempting to destroy the good things that God's doing in marriages or in families, even in entire churches, which can be split by these kinds of people, peace breakers. The Bible has strong words to address this shortcoming, lest any of us should fall into that trap of Satan. Ephesians chapter 4 attacks the peace breaker's favorite weapon when it says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful to building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who have listened. And don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger and brawling and slander along with every form of malice. I don't think God could be any stronger than that, do you? And listen to these words from Romans 16 where Paul tells us how to deal with peace breakers. He says, I urge you, brethren, watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you've learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. Peace breakers. Now before you you go pointing the finger of blame, each of us should examine our own hearts and tongues because if the truth's told, I'm sure we'd all have to admit that there were times when we have, we've been peace breakers. Because as I alluded to earlier, our bent, our predisposition, our selfish tendency is to break peace instead of to make it. We'd rather be right. We'd rather win sometimes than make peace, even if it means hurting other people in the process. Several years ago, the magazine Psychology Today posed a question, if you could push a button and thereby eliminate any person with no repercussions, would you do it? And 60 plus percent of those responding said, yeah, just give me a chance. Let me ask you tonight, have you been pushing any, anybody's buttons lately? Are you a peace breaker? Do you bring people together or do you do you pull them apart? Because it's always easier to create conflict than to promote peace. The second response to conflict, those that we might call peace fakers. People who prefer peace over the truth. Peace fakers see peace as simply the absence 
of any kind of discord. They'll go to any lengths to avoid any kind of conflict or confrontation or unrest. And in doing that, they settle for a counterfeit sort of peace that's based on avoiding the real issues. And whereas peace breakers love to use their tongues, peace fakers love to make truces. But truce making is not what Jesus is talking about in this beatitude. A truce is a cessation, a stopping of fighting that's imposed from the outside. But that's not peace. Because you can't keep a peace that isn't there in the first place. Peace never happens by chance. Jesus never said, blessed are the peace wishers, or the peace hopers, or the peace dreamers. He said, blessed are the peacemakers. And a genuine peacemaker is someone who actually discovers the origin of a conflict, finds a way to resolve it, and helps the parties, including themselves, to restore a proper, loving relationship. So if you've had a disagreement, maybe with a spouse, (laughs) happens, right? Or a child, or a friend, or a co-worker, or a family member, or, God forbid, a church member, and you've just agreed to stop fighting, don't congratulate yourself. Because all you have is a truce. And you haven't obeyed God because you haven't made peace. In peace faking, which would be more accurately called peacekeeping over truth telling, people think they're being wise, but in reality they're making a bad choice because whatever has caused tension in a relationship, if it's ignored, it'll come back again without having been properly resolved. Without a resolution, there's no peace. And neither is there a relationship, a real relationship. You know, some couples may say they've had 10 years experience in marriage or more, but sometimes the reality is that they've had one year repeated 10 times because they've never properly resolved the conflicts of the first 12 months in marriage. They've just put it under the carpet. They've never talked them through. They've just had a 10-year truce. And what a sad waste that is of potential, genuine marital happiness. Listen, especially if you have, uh, if maybe you're here tonight and you're a relatively young married couple, or you're here tonight and maybe you're planning to get married some, somehow, someday to someone, if things are not being resolved in a relationship, then that peace you're trying so very hard to maintain by avoiding the issues will only get harder and harder to keep until eventually there's a total breakdown in the relationship and relationships will die Well, everything on the surface looks, appears peaceful, but it's all fake. So there are peace breakers and there's peace fakers. You know, peace at any price is a form of deception, which the father of lies loves. Satan loves it when, in the name of peace, we maintain the status quo and never really honestly relate to one another and deal with things that need to be dealt with in the truth of God's word. And again, in God's word, Ephesians 4.25 challenges the peace faker among us when it says, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are members of one body. Well, finally, you know, some people respond to conflict and tension in relationships by being peacemakers. 
When left to ourselves, we, we lean towards divisiveness or selfishness. And so a peacemaker goes against that flow and they do whatever it takes to establish and maintain real peace. And real peace or peacemaking requires divine power and support because lasting peace is impossible to make without God's help. You can't make what you don't have. You can't spread peace if you're at war inside. And the only way to have inner peace is to make your peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. You know, from the moment Adam and Eve sinned, the whole scripture is this historical record of God reaching out to man, wooing him back into fellowship with him, climaxing with the sending of his only son for our sins. And God's strategy, his plan, has always been to bring about a just and lasting peace between a rebellious man or woman and himself, and then between men and women. In the first chapter of Colossians, the Apostle Paul talks about this and says that due to our sin, we were once alienated from God. Our sinful nature and actions made us enemies of our holy God, but God sent Jesus into the world to die for our sin and in so doing to reconcile all things to himself and to make peace with us. And Romans 5 and 1 says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the truth is that we must each experience the peace of God through faith in Jesus Christ in order to experience the blessedness of this particular beatitude. Only when the Prince of Peace lives inside of us do we have the power to counteract our sinful tendency towards conflict in such a way that we will become peacemakers. I have a book in my bookshelf by a man called Philip Keller, uh, a pastor, but one time he was a shepherd and he's the author of a classic book called The Shepherd Looks at the 23rd Psalm, which of course is the shepherd psalm. And he writes this, listen, he says, hundreds of times I've watched an old austere ewe sheep walk up to a younger one <clears throat> which might have been feeding contentedly or resting quietly in some sheltered spot and this old austere ewe would arch her neck, tilt her head, dilate her eyes and approach the other with a stiff-legged gait. All of this was saying in unmistakable terms, move over, <coughs> get out of the way, give ground or else. And if the other you did not immediately leap to her feet in self-defense, she would be butted unmercifully. Or, he said, if she did rise to accept the challenge, one or two strong bumps would soon send her scurrying off to safety. But, he says, one point that always interested me very much, he said, was that whenever I came into view as the shepherd, my presence attracted their attention and the sheep quickly forgot about their foolish rivalries and they stopped their fighting. The shepherd's presence made all the difference to their behavior. Folks, it's the shepherd's presence living in us alone that makes us able to be peacemakers. Only those who have first experienced the peace of God at the cross of Christ and then died to self to let Jesus live through them can become peacemakers. And in each of these beatitudes, Jesus is listing the attitudes that anyone who would be his disciple must embrace. And there's a reward for being a peacemaker. And in the reward is that we will be called the children of God. That's a title that 
indicates a special family relationship. Peacemakers are not perfect, but they bear a family resemblance that even the people of the world will notice. So when we make peace, we become like the God of peace. You know, it's easy to say amen to the message of making peace with God, but it's painful to go to somebody that we've hurt. It's painful to go to somebody that we've talked about. It's painful even to go to somebody who we know has been talking about us and to be peacemakers and put peace between us. Not easy business. Jesus was the greatest peacemaker and bridge builder of all time and they crucified him. He was called the Prince of Peace yet he hung on a Roman cross. He preached the gospel of peace and he died in an act of cruel violence. Peacemaking is costly. It's time consuming. It's emotionally exhausting. And those who engage in it will often be misunderstood. In Matthew 18, Jesus says that in times of conflict, it doesn't matter if you're the offended or the offender. You make the first move as a child of God. Jesus says, go and be reconciled to your brother or sister. He doesn't say write them a letter or list your grievances. No, he says go to the person, arrange a meeting because the most satisfying solution is coming face to face with that person to work out your differences. Remember, peace just doesn't happen. It's made. And if conflict is ignored, things will get worse. And that's why in verse 25, Jesus says, settle matters quickly with your adversary. I wonder if you can answer this question. When you're upset, when someone has caused you some annoyance or you're upset, who are you most likely thinking about? I'll tell you. You're thinking about yourself. You're thinking about your feelings, your hurts, your rights. And in Philippians 2 and 4, Paul says, this is backward thinking. He says, each of you should not look only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, Paul's not saying that your interests are irrelevant or, or unimportant, but what he is saying to us is have equal concern for the feelings and the needs of others, not just for yourself. And to abide, or to be able, I should say, to make peace happen, we have to try to see the situation from the other person's perspective. And importantly, make sure to attack the problem, not the person. Did you hear that? In any conflict, attack the problem. But don't attack the person. Listen, you can't focus on fixing the problem and fixing the blame at the same time. And if you try to be a peacemaker thinking, well, I'm, I'm really going to give that person a piece of my mind. I'm going to punish them for what they did to me. You might as well forget about it. You'll only make it worse. You're going to do more harm than good. In Proverbs 15 and 1, Solomon said, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. My translation, Pastor Gordon's translation, listen, engage your heart and your mind before you engage your mouth. Romans 12 and 18, pause if, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. In other words, be a bridge builder. And although implied in this passage is the reality that you won't, uh, you won't always be able to resolve every conflict with other people, some people, let's be honest, thrive on argument. They're quarrelsome. Some people refuse 
to settle for a solution that everyone can be happy with. But Paul says, you be more than that. Be more mature than that. Hold out the olive branch. Don't sacrifice your convictions or the truth, but cooperate as much as possible in an attempt to be a peacemaker. So God is on a recruiting mission tonight. He's looking for a few volunteers, maybe a lot of volunteers, to join his peace corps. He's looking for a few good men and a few good women who will spread God's peace wherever they are, in their homes, in workplaces, in schools, churches, in the community, because there's so much pain in the world. And that means there's plenty of work for you and I to do as God's children. And every tiny step receives God's blessing. Everyone can do something. As this little verse says, I'm only one man, but I am one. I can't do everything, but I can do something. And what I can do, I ought to do. And what I ought to do, by the grace of God, I will do. But so rare is this kind of person in this kind of world in which we live that when people see a peacemaker, they say, there goes a child of God. And God himself smiles and looks down and applauds from heaven and says, there's one of my kids, my children to my family. When we learn to be peacemakers, two things happen. First, we ourselves will be happy. To be honest, have you ever been involved in a conflict when someone, uh, with someone uh, and been happy about that? Have you slept well when you've been in the middle of conflict? Have you been content? Of course not, because only true peacemakers experience true contentment and happiness. Second, we are known as sons and daughters of God when we help bring people together who have been estranged, and especially when we make peace between men and God by leading them to Christ. That's the most Christ-like thing that we can do, and it marks us as God's children.